welcome to the Recombobulator Lab with Jason Graham Nye and Chris Dominic. Hey, Chris. Hey, Jason. Ever heard of a triple threat? Sure. Like a baller who can pass, shoot, and dribble? Or a rugby player who can catch, pass, and kick? Or that annoying guy at the party who can sing, dance, and be vulnerable? Sure, whatever. Anyway, Meal Pass is the lab's newest sponsor, and they are a serious triple threat. So it can sing and dance and be vulnerable? Boy, no. Meal Pass elegantly solves the three most serious problems facing America today. Our singing and dancing deficiencies. <laughs> oh, my God. No. No, enough. No singing, no dancing. What I'm talking about is a company that can help feed America's 50 million food insecure citizens, put money into the pockets of the country's 1 million restaurants who are trying to recover from the pandemic and reduce food waste. Whoa, tell me more. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? Meal Pass is a technology platform developed here in Australia. It gives restaurants a platform to list any end-of-day meals they'd otherwise throw away. Those in need access a code from a charity food partner. They fire up the app, choose a meal from a restaurant in their area and go and collect it. In doing so, the restaurant qualifies for lucrative but hard to access tax deductions and they reduce their food waste. That really is a triple threat. Providing money to restaurants, offering food to the hungry, and reducing GHG by reducing food waste. That's right. In a three-month pilot, mid-pandemic here in Australia, 500 restaurants signed up, including 7-Eleven and Subway. 55,000 meals were served and 100,000 pounds of landfill-bound food waste was rescued. That's phenomenal. Am I right? Yeah. So, when I'm not being a scintillating podcast host with you... I'm helping Meal Pass launch in the US. We've onboarded our first restaurants and served our first meals to those in need. It's so exciting to see it launch. How can our listeners learn more or help? They can head to mealpass.org to learn more. They can also help us by introducing us to any restaurants in their area that would want to sign up and start earning tax deductions. We're also looking to build our team. So if anyone would like to join us on our mission, we have really cool sales roles on offer. It's a really simple sell. Trust me. That's a way better triple threat than my singing dancing one. I'm not even sure that was ever in question. Mill Pass, radical generosity done profitably. Well, hello there. This week on the Recombobulator Lab, we are welcoming Pascal Finette, who I met at Singularity University some years ago, where he taught us all about possibilities of the future and where we might be heading as a society. That's a very brief introduction for someone who is so expansive. He started his career way back with Mozilla and has been founder of technology companies and now does some incredible work helping leaders really break through and become better leaders. So welcome, Pascal. Welcome, Pascal. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. This was uh, quite the intro. Well, I, it was it was poor. So I, I, I want to really dive right in to get the backstory because it's just so epic. The the, the Mozilla, Google, eBay experiences. Mm-hmm. I just think if we can dive in there, that'd be great. I'd just love to learn about what you learned when you were there. Mozilla was the very beginning for my US career. So the, the very, very beginning was that, and this is probably a common thread through my life, is that I happened to be in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. by total coincidence. Incidents. And then I'm probably smart enough to raise my hand and say, here, 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 take yeah. me, take me. Um, <laughs> the first time this happened to me was when I was in college. And I grew up in, in Cologne, Germany. And in college, uh, at the time I was there in the early mid 90s, the internet first.com boom happened. Mm. And University of Cologne, super entrepreneurial, a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of my friends were like all starting companies. So I was like, heck, I need to start a company. So I uh, founded my first company out of college while in college, raised two and a half million dollars, like did the whole like dot-com boom and bust 
particularly bust part, very important. Um, really didn't make any money out of it, but uh, learned a lot. And that really kick-started my, my interest in my career in you know, figuring out where to go. And then I stumbled into the what then was a very nascent organization, which turned into eBay Germany. Oh, and then, right. okay. So that was where it started. So eBay in the early 2000s, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, so saw that like whole e-commerce world explode around me. And then, yeah, I got the great chance to work at uh, places like Mozilla. And, you know, for people who have no idea what Mozilla is, we should talk about it because I recognized it immediately, but, you know, I'm of a certain age. <laughs> that is ouchie for my uh, friends over at Mozilla uh, because they're still around. They're still trying to fight the good fight. But I mean, here's the here's the situation. So Mozilla is the open source organization behind the Firefox web browser. And I think Mozilla is, particularly when I was there, an incredibly important part of internet history because they took a internet which was dominated by single player which at the time was internet explorer hard to believe that that was a thing hmm. like 97 percent market share and essentially microsoft has had given up on the internet you know like they sold all their licenses to windows and you know all that got good stuff and they thought the internet is like a fat goes away and out of the ashes rose the bird that is uh you know firefox and um essentially really kick-started the modern web as we know it now granted I, I would also argue that the organization has lost a little bit its way today because you know luckily we are living in a world where you have opportunities and choices and can use your Safari and your Chrome and your Brave and, you know, all that good stuff. And, mm -hmm. of course, Firefox. I appreciate the correlation because I, I, I'm sure a lot more people would understand or, or know about Firefox. But it's just it, the idea that the Internet was what it was back in the 90s or it's so different than the way it is now. Yeah, it, absolutely. And also just an incredible story. I mean, I remember joining them when we were just we were just about to release Firefox version 2 and we grew like absolute wildfire. Also, a open source organization. So at the core of the organization, the headquarter itself was only about 100, 150 people. So all of us were 150 people and you had this massive core of volunteers around us, you know, building the product. And I remember very distinctly when we crossed the 500 million user mark and we brought on a new employee, we said, we, we just did the math in our heads. So, you know, it was like 500 million users, employee number 100, whatever, 20 or so. We said, okay, so here's your 4.5 million users. Don't screw it up. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> but it's an extraordinary story of open source and the success of open source. I'm just thinking right now about what are the other examples? Like, would you describe Wikipedia as open source or is it? Yeah, I mean, clearly Wikipedia is, is the shining example for this. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. for sure. But make no mistake, if you think about pretty much every big company you think about today, the Googles, the Facebooks of this world, they're all built on open source technology. Right. Mm. A good chunk of all their infrastructure runs on stuff like Linux, the operator, mm. server operating systems, open source. This free and publicly available, right? Like a lot, a lot of their core technology is open source. Right. So it's open source and then they sort of privatize the profits and mm -hmm. it's... Whereas there's something beautifully democratic about Firefox in a way, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I think it also points towards an interesting shift, I believe, in the way we build businesses today, which is more and more of your business has become commoditized mm. and is either available to you either for free or for a very low fee, mm. right? Which means that, you know, Jason, if you sell diapers online, theoretically, hypothetically... <laughs> 
And <laughs> that's a funny you would example. Hypothetically, <laughs> you would hypothetically want to set up a, an online store. Mm. You would never, ever think about building your own online store anymore, right? You just go and, yeah. you know, take one of the big uh, companies out there and pay them, you know, 50 bucks a month and you're done. Mm. And I think that's beautiful because it really allows us to focus on where do we actually drive the value add for the customer? Oh, that's super interesting. Um, and then you had a moment uh, with Google. Is that true? A <laughs> short moment. Moment is the right word. Oops. <laughs> no, no, no. This is great. I, here's the thing. So I always had this fant- like this, this uh, not fetish, but like this idea that like, Google is a really fascinating company mm-hmm. and I wanted to work for them at one point. And I got recruited to into the team, the rebuilt team of Google.org, their philanthropic arm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was super cool. I was like, this is the job of my life. You know, $150 million we have to spend every year on tech companies solving the world's biggest problems. And then I got to Google and I realized super quickly that Google is absolutely amazing. But I personally cannot function in a very large corporation. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, And, you know, Jason, you know me a little bit. I'm fairly quick with my assessments and I'm also mm -hmm. fairly quick with like making a decision and sticking Mm. to it. So uh, I left Google after 90 days. Oh, great. Wow. To the point that my recruiter, the person who got me in, she called me afterwards and we're still friends. And she's, she said like, dude, what happened? Like nobody <laughs> ever quits Google after 90 days. Are you crazy? You're even giving, you, you had to repay your like signing bonus. You oh, got this like weird bonus in the beginning. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I don't care. You know, it's like life is too short. And I, you know, I had, I had a good experience. Yeah. If you track your career, that ability to not, that ability to assess quickly and obviously over time you've, you've got an accuracy to it. That's pretty rare because I feel like you know, the dream of, I want to work at Google, that dream could be very strong in you and you just keep ignoring your intuition. I can do this, I can do this. And like three years later, what am I doing in this big company? Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, also, so I think that's true. I think there's also a piece in there, which is, I think I'm fairly risk tolerant. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I've never, never really thought about like the existential risk and make absolutely no mistake. I also coming here from a perspective of privilege, meaning even if I would lose my job, I couldn't do anything for a year or so, I would be fine. I like, Mm. you know, there's a net for me, a safety net for me. And that's clearly a privilege I I have and I'm very aware of. But I think there's also a part around it just, you know, you know, life is short. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're here. Yeah, it's just one. It's like that Mary Oliver thing. I don't know. One precious life. You've just got to be clear about your North Star and go for it. This segues quite neatly a little bit into the work that you're doing with leaders and this idea of zero tolerance for the bullshit zone and the no bullshit zone, which I think is interesting because I'm sure when you we talked about this the other day, where people get enamored with 1.0 of their product, right? <laughs> they love it so much, and the idea of that you want to do the lean methodology and you learn and iterate and change and change and change like is that when you think about the no bullshit zone with the with the kind of leaders you're working with is that sort of it where they're kind of telling a story in their head about no no, wait this will work and you're sitting there going uh no or am i a little bit off there i think it's part of the story i think the part of the story i'm particularly coming from is and this might be you know i i thought about quite a long time where this actually comes from. And I think it comes probably from the fact that English is my second language. Mm. Mm. And I have just no tolerance for you to use these big words. <laughs> and, oh, that's you funny. Know, work. There must be so many of them in technology, though, in entrepreneurship. Oh, my God. But it's it's this thing where it's like, you know, I come from a perspective of we typically work with incumbent organizations. So, you know, more established companies which have been doing business for a while. 
And there's a lot of very smart people and they seem to like think for whatever reason that they need to like use very smart words. The challenge is I don't even understand what they're saying. Mm. Yeah. I sit there and I'm like, I, I, I get conceptually, I know what the words mean, mm. but I don't know what the words mean when you string them together. Right. And right. I think there's a piece in there which, and this is the part where I get kind of antsy is I think people hide behind this stuff. It's right. a way for someone to like, just like throw out a whole bunch of cool words and they all sound great and grandiose. But the really the essence, you know, it's like, oh, wait, so you're just telling me you sell stuff online. You yeah, know, or, right. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I had this great opportunity, Jason, where at Singularity University, mm. actually in a course, I think right after yours, ah. I met a, a leader of the British SAS, the special oh. forces in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were talking and, and you know, I was telling him about this, like the way I, I look at the world and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way I phrased this and I, I stole it from him because I love it so much. He said, it's all common sense, but common sense doesn't mean it's common practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, geez, yeah, that's exactly it. That is so true. It's interesting because language, so I, I'm originally a Japanese interpreter. So I, I speak Japanese and I work with the Japanese Olympic Committee. So I live in two different languages. So I know the power of language and the fact that your words are your world. Like the things you say sort of manifest. And so if you're the leader of a big organization and you're telling yourself these, you're using these big words and you're trying to complicate something that's fairly simple or you're trying to be more grandiose than you actually are, you you really skew your own kind of perception of what you're doing. (laughs) If it's like, I just sell stuff online versus whatever the complicated language is, it's, it's kind of an interesting conundrum. But for, for you to go into an organization, particularly an incumbent where their challenge probably is to innovate, they often maybe iterate gently as opposed to radically innovate and radically disrupt themselves. You need someone like yourself to come in with that Japanese katana and just slice through it. There's also another piece to it, which involves credibility and communication. I'm just speaking from some of the work that we do and some of the experiences that we've been having. What do you do, Chris? Does Pascal know? Sorry. Pascal might not know. So Pascal, I'm a jury consultant. Jury rigger. It's not what it is, but don't just ignore him. So the the issue here is there's a lot of people these days as an audience, if you will, like in in your example, you were the audience to somebody else who's up there, maybe building a wall with, you know, dense, hyper extended words. And what we see a lot of times now that's really interesting is what a premium people put on being real, on being straight. Like respectful, but straight. Like, well, I just don't find that to be very believable. <laughs> it's a straight phrase, but it's got a respectful tone with it, right? And it's interesting to me to see what a conversation people are having about that all the time. So I think it's not just you. I guess is my point is that I think we're in a phase right now where we're seeing a lot of people who value this. And they're finding that when people have an, I'm going to call it old fashioned, what I would say is kind of buttoned up approach to a lot of things where it it comes off like I'm trying to keep you far away from me and I don't want you to be able to ask me critical questions or I want to act like, you know, I have this under control and we're not going to have an interaction about it. And there's just, I just think it's interesting because I think there's probably something broader and more powerful that's going on with what you're, you've got your finger on the pulse of. Yes. And I think, I, I don't want to get into like the, the politics of all of that stuff, but then on the flip side of that, you've got this whole cancel culture and mm-hmm. the woke culture and so on, right? Where people are becoming so concerned with the words they're using. It's interesting. You know, like, it's kind of funny. Let me just give you like one example. It's just like, I, I uh, shared 
notice on our internal company Slack the other day, and uh, I literally came across this. This is legitimately something someone has on their LinkedIn profile about their company. It is our purpose to empower organizations through the individuals that comprise them and take them to a level of innovation proficiency that creates outcomes in a prolific, systematic, and sustainable manner. So what does that actually mean? I mean, so what you do is you help people to do innovation. Yeah. It's like six See, words. I, I guess. I mean, I'm just like, come on, guys. Yeah, that's that's rough. That's I mean, brutal. that's a pretty amazing example. I wanted to share a little bit with Singularity University is a program that Pascal runs, and I had the opportunity to go and do it. And the the sort of the the future we are looking into, like at the time, Tesla had just installed the autopilot thing, so that we had a Tesla demonstration. But we looked at the human biome, the fact that your internal, your gut health, there's more DNA in your gut that's not you. It's it's really a surreal concept, but brilliant. Mm-hmm. We looked at artificial intelligence. We we had a, a mock trial. You would have liked this, Chris. We had a trial where we looked at the the ethical issues of of robots. Your domestic assistant who was a robot was going to get a software update and what would happen if we said you know what we don't want to do a software update we're going to get a new model then the robot goes to you know the high court and says i'm about to get euthanized by my owner it was amazing and it's always stuck with me so with that in mind pascal it's a thing oh it's it's awesome with that in mind i wanted to ask you as you look into the future i mean you were at the cutting edge of the future when your career started with mozilla and those sorts of things now 2021 as you look down the road, what are the one or two things that most excite you from a technology standpoint or where we're going? Like, Can you give us a little bit of that? Sure. Uh, let me also give you a little bit of a background where my personal journey has taken me. So when we met at Mozilla, which uh, sorry, at Singularity University, which is, you know what, like six years ago, maybe yeah. five, mm-hmm. somewhere around that time. So Singularity really is about a, a very positive outlook into the future, which I really enjoy. But I also think, and this was always a little bit of my criticism, there's a little bit of a, a non-reflectiveness about it as a self-driving cars that will come, they will come and like, you know, two years later, they will take over the world. And the reality is when you look at the dissemination of change, it takes a while. It always takes a while. And it always has this interesting curve of what is best described in this Hemingway quote, gradually and then suddenly. It feels like nothing happens for a really long time. And then suddenly it seems to be coming out of nowhere, when in reality, it has actually taken quite a bit of time. So I think you want to look, when you look at technology, you always want to look at through the lens of, you can see these thin wisps of tomorrow, these early indicators, pretty early on. So I am particularly at the moment, I'm really excited to see what are the actual implications of topics like artificial intelligence, or further increases in in automation and robotics, where we're just about to see the real impact of this stuff. Arguably, like for the last couple of years, it was all like headlines, but nobody was actually doing anything with it in terms of productive uses. The thing I'm at the moment, and probably for the foreseeable future, I'm most excited about is that we're now seeing a generation of kids coming into their own, into power, into positions where they can actually do something, who have grown up with this stuff and for for whom this is absolutely normal. Mm, It's just the thing they know. And I think that will change so much. You had this Senate hearing in the United States where they grilled Mark Zuckerberg. And one of the questions which was repeatedly put to him was, uh, so Mr. Zuckerberg, when I sent an email over WhatsApp, (laughs) right? And Zuckerberg just stood there and was like, 
I, I don't even know how to answer that. Mm. You just shamed yourself in front of everyone. You know, it's funny. What I thought about when you talked about this wonderful Hemingway quote that involves gradually but suddenly, I thought about back problems. Oh, <laughs> absolutely, man. It's so like, funny. Like when you go to the doctor or the chiropractor or somebody and they say to you, well, actually, you know, this isn't just happened. I mean, you, 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 this has been working for a while and you're like, yep. what, what, really, me? You also know that the, uh, the original source, the whole quote goes, um, how did you go bankrupt? Oh. And then the, the response is gradually and then suddenly. No, that's even better. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty evil, but was that Hemingway? Yes, Hemingway. It's uh, the sun also rises. Brilliant. I think the other classic Senate hearing thing that I can't get out of my head, I think it was, it was Zuckerberg again, where, where the senator asked, okay, so people post their photos on Facebook and then how do you make money? And there was a really long pause from the robotic looking Zuckerberg and he had to kind of reboot his brain because it was such a basic question. He goes, advertising. And the, the senator's like, oh, yeah. oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> But I'm glad, Pascal, you have that view of the future, the next generation of kids and the power. Yeah. So my next key question is, will the robots kill us? <laughs> no. No. Good. No, I, so, yes, actually, they will. Um, <laughs> but not as a, not as a species. I, 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 no, you will, you will run into like stupid robots doing stupid shit and they will kill you. Uh, you know, if you, if you walk into an industrial robot today, it has no spatial awareness of you. And, you know, like that's the reason why if you go into a factory, there's like fences around them and, mm. you know, like safety tape and God knows what. You know, it's interesting. It's like I, I go back to uh, there's a gentleman called Andrew Ng uh, who teaches artificial intelligence over at Stanford. It's probably one of the world's leading experts. And he makes a very compelling argument where he basically says, and this goes back to this whole like Skynet idea, right? This is mm, like the yeah. Terminator. Yeah, the Terminator. Everybody always invokes Skynet and the Terminator, uh, including Elon Musk, who clearly has no idea what he's talking about in this regard, at least. Mm. Because Andrew makes this following point. He says, here's the thing. So we talk about like machines becoming conscious, quote unquote. Mm. We, we don't even know what consciousness is. So we mm. don't even have a target right. as to... What do we actually build towards? There's so much like mystery around like, you know, what's consciousness? How does our brain actually work and all that mm -hmm. good stuff? But even if you were to build a computer uh, or a machine, which the quote unquote becomes conscious, you have no idea what consciousness even is. Mm -hmm. So his whole argument is that we shouldn't worry about this, you know, for quite a while. Wow. Okay. So rest assured. Well, well, the one, the one video, you know, that Boston, is it Boston Robotics, Boston something? And they have those, Robotics, yeah. those dogs that seem to mm -hmm. have emerge from that show black mirror it's just a, oh. it's a i don't know but they are incredible right i mean this is the, the ability totally. to tip over get up bu, bu, bu. anyway yeah, okay I mean, cl clearly i mean totally but you could not go to this this robot and say fetch fetch a fetch a like fetch a stock stick yeah right it's yeah. like they're dumb they're yeah. really good at like balancing themselves but they're dumb as yeah. you know the metal <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're made yeah. out of yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But actually, yeah. at Singularity, the idea, we saw the, it's the LiDAR technology on top of a yeah. self-driving car. The fact that they have like 6,000 images a second or a minute, that's a good example of using technology to judge things that humans are so bad at judging or can be bad at judging, like distance and speed. So there's a really interesting play there. And I think automobiles, where we're going to end up is so fascinating. Like, I just love the idea, the transformation in cities where you've got an Uber kind of app. You don't own a car, you own a subscription. The car collects you, takes you to where you want to go, and you can do work while you're in the car. Like, the whole 
social thing of automobility is fundamentally changed through technology in a fantastic way. You know, I think, Jason, you hit on a really important point, which is I think the, the much more interesting question we should ask ourselves, and we I think we don't ask ourselves enough, is what can we actually do when we when we bring machine and human or human and machine together? Mm, yeah. And I give you a simple example. I'm an athlete. I'm wearing a uh, URA ring. Oh, yeah. Um, which is a, which is a essentially like a, you know, like, like one of these smart watches, but it's a ring. Mm, and because okay. it's a ring, you wear it 24 seven, you can sleep with it, it really doesn't bother you, etc. And what Ura has done better than any other technology company I know is they give you essentially a very clear indication of how well I am recovered from my last workout. Ooh. So oh, every wow. morning, I can check my Ura and it says, Okay, so here's how you slept this night, here's where your recovery index is. So they're not just give me the raw data which is useless to me, right? Like, mm. what do I care what my heart rate is at any given time? It tells me, hey, today's a day where you should probably like dial it back a little bit because you are like slightly overworked and, you know, like for the, the best adoption of your body, you know, like just take it easy today or that go is, full wow. hard on today. That is brilliant. That's amazing. I've seen friends, YPO friends who have them and I just kind of assumed it was like, well, it's like an Apple Watch on your ring. But that mm. level of analysis to really give you, to make sense of the data. Like I was just watching in my mm -hmm. Apple Watch in the health thing a moment ago. There's some stuff that I don't know what that means. Like, okay, I slept longer. Don't know. Is that good? Like, <laughs> You know, that's fascinating. Yeah. And what yeah. a brilliant piece of technology in terms of design around your body. The fact that it's a ring. Totally. It's sort mm -hmm. of, you don't even think about it. And you probably don't, do you need to charge it? Yeah, you charge it, but every two weeks or so. All oh, right. That's, Whoa. That is clever. Can I, I want to segue into your endurance athletics. So when we first met, I immediately was drawn to you because we're slightly the same physically. You're tall, lean, and I thought you must be athletic. Singularity, Singularity University is located, just remind me, is it an Air Force base? Is it NASA? It is a NASA. It used, it, so they're not there anymore, but it used, they used to be on the NASA campus. Yeah. Got it. So mm, we would live in these dorms that were straight out yeah. of the 60s. I, every morning I woke up preparing to go to the moon. I mean, I really yeah. I had the suit on and everything. But but um, Pascal helped me figure out how to run. Where could I run? And could I run outside the compound? And so I was running during this course, which was kind of cool. But you are a, an epic endurance athlete who's now transitioned to uh, hiking and climbing and other things. As you, I mean, you've put your body through very big tests. I, I'm assuming the way I've done with marathons, like you just want to think through how can I get the most out of this thing called this body? If you see parallels between that, the way you've tested yourself and going to that next level and just human beings in general, I mean, are there any generalizations or? Oh, 100%. So yeah, what what are the key learnings or what have you seen? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's when you add the actually, Pascal. That's when it's, it's, it's that's when it becomes. I love the actually. It becomes, it becomes even more real. Okay, good. <laughs> so you're really bringing it today, man, Jason. That was that was for once an insightful question. <laughs> wow. Thirty-three uh, episodes later, finally yeah. figured this thing out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Too bad today is the wrap of season one. <laughs> I was just it. getting warmed up. So, uh, I mean, I, you, you're a runner. So my, my first real love was running and then I got into ultra marathon running. Mm -hmm. And I think it teaches you a lot about perseverance. Mm -hmm. I think that's the big mm -hmm. thing for me is like the perseverance, but also understanding that and really feeling it, feeling mm -hmm. the embodiment that if you want to achieve a goal, it's a million steps one after the other. Yeah, You know, it's not mm -hmm. this like mm -hmm. this this heroic, like, you know, like there's this one push and we're done. Mm. It's just like, no, one step more, one step more. And I'm pretty sure, Jason, if, you know, uh, if, if you look at, at your running, I, I'm, I'm 
pretty sure you can can relate to this, which is it's really is this you have these moments in running where you're like, hey, you know what? I'm just like, come on, like ten more steps. And yeah. then you you made those steps and you're like, okay you know, like to this lamppost and then, yes. oh, come on, like do this, right? Uh, you know, I transitioned out of running for health reasons into rowing where I have the exact same thing, right? It's like, come on, 10 more strokes. You can do 10, right? right. You know, like 10 you can do or your stroke rate in, in rowing is somewhere around like, you know, 24, 26, 28 strokes per minute. So you're actually like the rowing motion is relatively slow. So you're sitting there and you're like, man, I know it's going to be only like two minutes. Mm. This is just, it's 50 strokes. I can do right. 50 strokes, you know, right. that kind of thing. And then the other thing which I found is, as you mentioned, uh, we moved out to Boulder, Colorado. So right at the Rocky Mountains foothills. So I got into mountaineering. So, mm. you know, mountain climbing. There's an interesting piece in there, which is, I think it plays off my my tolerance for not necessarily stupid risk, but my my lack of, of or somewhat lack of fear of taking uh, a risk. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you go up a mountain and, you know, quite frankly, when I'm at the top of the mountain, I'm like, holy smokes, like that looks yeah. like I shouldn't have climbed this, you know? <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. What am I doing? How do we get down here? Yeah. You know, that's the big You're problem, only right? halfway. That's right. <laughs> yeah. The fine line between uh, brave and stupid is yeah, always the thing that we're wondering about, yeah. right? So, hey, I wanted to ask you, Pascal, one of the things we do on this show is we ask people if they have any myths to debunk. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I love that. The best question. It's so fascinating. And you've got such a broad life experience. I wouldn't know where to start, but there's got to be a few myths you've come across. I tell you, let me preface this because this is not my myth, but it's the one which I like, I I just, it it blew my mind when I heard it. There's a show on NPR here in the United States with Kai Risdale, and they have a similar question where they say, where they ask a person at the end, they say, what is something you believe to be true and now know it's different? Mm. Very simple. And I think it was the founder of Stripe who said this thing, which totally blew my mind because I was like, wait, wait, what? So he said, I used to think that a pony is just a smaller, younger horse. Mm. Right. I was like, F, this is crazy. I thought a pony was a smaller, younger horse. Until my wife, who happens to have horses, she's like, you're stupid. Like, of course a pony is a different thing. It's genetically different. You idiot. So that is a myth I want to debunk. For everyone who's listening to this, never ever think that a pony is just a young horse. All right, that... That is, is awesome. so cool. Is there a okay? Yeah. Now I'm going to go down DNA road. Is a pony related to a donkey? Do we know anything? Is a donkey, a pony, uh, and a horse all different? Yeah, donkey and horses are different. Yes. Oh, this there is, is so cool. There is a crossbred between a donkey and a horse. Okay, uh, wait a minute. Though. What's a mule then? Oh. A mule, I believe, is a crossbred between a donkey and a horse. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. And, See, yeah. I like that. I love yeah. that. That is so yeah. cool. But don't yeah. don't. Like, don't take it from the guy who like doesn't even know that a pony isn't a horse. Yeah. <laughs> please, please go on Wikipedia and look that stuff up, please. That's so cool. Oh man! Um, oh, I man. did. I, I the other thing I wanted to speak a little bit about is your your podcast, The Heretic, and, and indeed oh, it's a, a blog and what have you. But what I thought was awesome about listening to The Heretic lately is something that my kids were reflecting on, which is. They're 18 and 16, and they were saying, gosh, what? back in the day, we could sit through a full-length feature movie, and then we watch a bit of YouTube, and then we are on TikTok, and I'm like, your attention span is ridiculous. But I love The Heretic, the podcast, because when Chris and I started this six months ago, mid-pandemic, we sort of blog, we looked at Google and said, okay, roughly a podcast should last about 30 minutes, and which mm-hmm. is what this one is. But your heretics are these beautiful little like bites of like three minutes, five minutes. So yesterday or the day before... You oh, spoke so about cool. the, the magic five hours in any day. And I just think it's a fascinating thing that we've been brought up in this industrial age, in our schooling, in factories and workplaces. It's like you come at eight and you leave at six. The 
actual productivity, the really good stuff is, as you were saying, Pascal, around five hours. So let's get oh, clear yeah. about that. You know, my first work was in Japan, you know, classic Japanese big stockbroking company. I couldn't leave before the boss left and he didn't leave until 9.30. Some dum-de-dum-de-dum, market's been closed six hours. What are we doing here? And so I just, I, a couple of things. I love, you know, the biggest stockbroking company in the world, Namura Securities, gigantic. But I loved a couple of things. The Heretic is, the podcast is so cool because it's just bite-sized for the, you know, shortest pension span. But they're so just quite amazing. You know, the work lately, it wasn't Atari, was it? It was Sony's, what was the technology company you were talking about the other day from the 70s? Oh, Nintendo, my friend. Oh, Nintendo. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm not a gamer, gaming person. But it was just really cool, those insights. And I think there's something very interesting. We've all gone audio, you know, blogs are a little bit not there, but now audio is everything. Podcasts are exploding, but I love your your innovation on that, which is these bite-sized pieces, which is really cool. Yeah, let me let me uh, bust a myth here, uh, as we were oh, just a myth buster. We're going to go two. Yeah, two, go two. two. I get two for one. All right. <laughs> so here's the myth. I actually didn't plan this. The way this worked is I am writing The Heretic, which used to be an email I just sent to a bunch of friends and then turned into essentially a, a blog. And I write you know, twice a week, et cetera, and they're very short. And they're short for a simple reason, because I can't write long. Hmm. Simple mm. as that, right? I've got these ideas and I've got a thought and I'm like, okay, let me keep this like short and like, you know, you can digest it in like two, three minutes. And then as Chris and I were talking before we got on the show, I got all this beautiful audio equipment. And I'm like, man, I can just like talk this thing out. And it sounds amazing. It sounds like I'm on NPR. <laughs> Yeah, right? it so, really does. It yeah, really totally. does, so, yeah. Like, two and a half months ago or so, I was just like, let me just talk these things out and see what happens. And yeah. then, you know, this is, again, like the beauty of today's world, right? Mm. You know, is I record this. I record it on a piece of software, which cost me less than $100. I, you know, like I put it up in the cloud. I pay like a service like, what, 10 bucks a month to like host it and distribute it out to all the podcast networks. And suddenly Pascal is a podcaster. That is brilliant. Right? I, and here we are, Boulder, Colorado, Portland, Oregon, Holy and Sydney, Australia. Yeah. You know? So, wow, brilliant. that's amazing. So, so hey, I'm really curious to, to check out The Heretic. That sounds really cool. Is there anything else on your list that you want to you wanna talk about in terms of... Uh, how what people might be interested in what you're putting out there these days well i mean quite frankly you don't uh, first of all i live in a world where the beauty is that my first and last name there's only one other person in the world who shares the same last and first name and that person <laughs> is not very good on the internet on the interwebs so, <laughs> oh my god you sound like my father you, you have unique <laughs> internet space you like I, have your own brand I, it's oh, there you know here's a funny thing i get these emails from these like seo companies the search engine optimization companies like hey let us help you get on the first four pages of Google. I'm like, I own Google. For my work, I own it. There is nobody else. There is nobody else. No, and you know, that that is one of the things that makes us very similar because there is no other recombobulator lab. And actually, I cheated because there were many Jason Grahams, but when I got married, I became Jason Graham Nye. And so there is only one Jason Graham Nye in the world. It's not as cool as you, Pascal, because you were born into the awesomeness. I'm kind of just second place because I engineered it. <laughs> but it's cool, right? I would turn that on its head and would basically say, you're actually the smarter ones because I just stumbled into it by pure luck. You <laughs> That's designed my it. <laughs> That's right. It is pretty you funny. It happened. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure. Were you, when you got married, Jason, were 
you yeah. thinking, you know what? I need I need my personal brand to expand here. Totally. I, I'm worried about internet space. Absolutely. That, it was okay, 19, all right. We got made in 1998. It was top of mind. I said, we got to win oh. the SEO. Well, I got to yeah. own Google. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. my parents were shocked that we changed our surname. But, in, yeah, I've never thought it was right that women lose their surnames. So we thought we'd just glue them together. Yeah. And you and you bought your uh, you bought your first cell phone. That's right. And, That's yeah, right. It was, really, it was big. Big in a case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been such a great conversation. We uh, can go forever. Yeah. Pascal, this is actually... Yeah, go on, Chris. But we can't. We can't, so, I know. But yeah, this man. is the end of our first season, and it's been such a joy that you're you're here to bookend this experience for us as we've spoken to so many people. But this has been a fabulous conversation, and we'd like to have you back in the next episode, because I feel next season, because I feel like there's so much more we can get into. Uh, yeah, we should pick up where we left off, because there's, there's clearly a lot more. That was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, and thank all of you for being so supportive this season. We really, really appreciate it. We are going to wrap season one now, and we will catch you next time. <laughs> See you. Bye, everybody. Joining, joining us at the Recombobulator, Recombobulator Lab, Lab with, with Chris, Chris Dominic, Dominic and Jason, Jason Graham-Nine. Catch, Catch you next time. time.